Welcome to The Change Jar. I'm Ashley Tate, joined by Siri Hussain, and we're inviting you to have conversations with us about race and racial tension in various settings. In today's podcast, we'll discuss managing the workplace during a racial pandemic with Brandon Williams, who works for Galveston Urban Ministries. I'm ready. All right. All right. All right. So uh, just straight out the gate, my first question for you, my man, is how have you managed and or coped with the recent racial tension that has once again boiled over into the U.S.? Yeah. And and thank you for saying like once again, like like this did not start with George Floyd. I think that's what what people don't realize. Like you, you might be waking up to this now, but this is something that black people have been dealing with. And not only for me for 30, for my 35 years of life, but like for generations and generations of my family who have dealt with this and that, that generational stress and that generational trauma is passed down, right? If it's through redlining and our inability to own, like my, my parents just bought their own house maybe 12 years ago right and they're the grown people like there's all these all these situational things that we've already been dealing with and so we're i'm so glad that people are waking up to it now but they need to understand that we we have been shouting this out and kneeling and marching and doing all these things for a long time without being heard so for there to be grace on both sides for you to have grace with your with people of color, with understanding this has been a weight on us for a while. And then for people of color to have grace with our friends on the other side who haven't dealt with this issue, but who are now waking up and now have a million questions and who are calling all their black friends like, I'm sorry. Like there needs to be grace on both sides of that, right? And even that, like our goal is to tear down systems, not people right? Like, that's the one thing that keeps, because I get so angry with people and I have to remember, even the cops are victims of a system that's unjust, right? Mm-hmm. They're at, they, all they're doing is acting out of a system that, in a lot of ways, puts them at fault. When they're called to be all of these million things to people and are not given proper training, like, they are victims of that same system. And sometimes it's so easy for us to demonize them or demonize whoever without realizing that it's the systems that need to be torn down, not the people. Because if you tear them down and you demonize all of them, you're doing the exact same thing that we don't want people to do to us. And that's not healthy. Absolutely. So given everything that you understand, everything that you're taking in, everything that you're trying to kind of cope with on your own of understanding and realizing it's only human nature for me to get upset with people, but then realizing it's a systemic issue. How are you finding your own ways of coping or managing with that and dealing with that? Yeah. So at the beginning, I, I did not. I was angry and I was hurt and wept, right? Like, like I have a daughter and I have to worry about like, is my daughter, because my wife is white, uh, just full transparency. And so is my daughter gonna be treated as black or is she gonna be treated as white, right? So like walking through that as a new father and just seeing, even because so I'm, I'm a Christian as well, and a lot of my anger actually came out of the church because I was seeing people who said, oh, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, uh, we love him. And then they had such harsh things to say about people of color and George Floyd. And so like, there was a lot of anger in me. I had to let go and I had to, and I'm still, I'm still working through a lot of that if I'm, if I'm just completely honest. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard, it's hard because when what you say about George Floyd, for, for me as a man of color, you're saying about me. Because if that was me on my on my stomach with somebody's knee on my neck, would you be saying the same things? Like, would you be saying, oh, he probably deserved it? Or like, what did he do? Because we had Ahmaud Aubrey, we had Breonna Taylor, and then we had George Floyd. 
all in a row, like mad. Even with Ahmad Aubrey, it was what did he do? What did he do wrong? It was his fault. Like, man, like that. I, I hear that from my white friends, and they don't realize how that sounds to me as a black man. They think that's so isolated, but you're, it's you're you're speaking to me because I could have been running through that neighborhood. And I totally hear that. You know, like just on on relating to the fact that you know Aaron Aaron and myself are in an interracial relationship and thinking about you know, what that looks like now for us without children and just thinking about, you know, you're going through that now as a, as a new father, what, what then is that going to look like, you know, when uh, Aaron and I decide uh, to have children and, you know, you're mentioning, you know, these, these new things coming from, you know, people in the community, the church, uh, the workplace, hearing all of these, these conversations and these topics. And I know you mentioned a little bit about your, your current boss asking about how you manage race in the workplace today. What has been, your experience with talking about race in the workplace, specifically either your current workplace um, or previous workplaces that you've been at in general. And this this might be a, a really broad way of, of saying this and you know, people can think what they want to, but I feel like one of the biggest ways to, to fight racial reconciliation and fight unjust systems is by building relationships. Because it's really hard for me to stereotype someone or treat someone unkind that I have a relationship with. Like it puts a different level. And so the reason why I say that is because uh, I work I work in a really unique place that I have built relationships and our, our staff is very multicultural. And from like, we have people from the New York and, and, and out West, like we, like it's, it's kind of all over the place, right? And even in mindset wise. And so since we built a relationship, we've already been having these conversations of race because it's a safe place. And so my white coworkers one time, she pulled me aside and she's like, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, is this a black people question? She's like, yes, it is. And we had that conversation. And so she felt safe enough to ask me these questions um, and stumbled through it. When you have that relationship, you can stumble through and you might say some stuff that's offensive, but because we have a relationship, I can tell you, hey, don't say that. That's yeah. not right. Um, and so I've been blessed to work in an environment where like we've already kind of fostered that. And from a boss level for him to come to me um, and say, what do you think? What's the best way? Like, like that's humility is like reaffirms my identity. Um, Cause a lot of times we have people in power who are telling us how we should handle the situation without ever walking in our shoes. And that that's stupid. Like, don't do that. If you don't know what it's like to be black, man, just like take a seat and ask. You, you talked a lot about, you know, these relationships and, and currently, you know, a lot of workplaces are, are taking this step towards building relationships with their black employees. Do you feel like that that has been something that has been missed in, in, in workplaces in general, that they haven't been, you know, specifically taking that time to hear from their black employees? Yeah. So like it's a like work is such a funny thing in a sense of like I spend like if you work a 40 hour work week, right? They they those are that group of people is like who you spend this almost the most amount of time with outside of your wife and immediate family like your your friends don't even see you as much as your co-workers do right and so like if we're doing that like instead of us having these sterilized environments we need to be building relationships and we need and, and doing that in a healthy way and i feel like that would even improve just productivity if i know that my co-worker is actually for me and is not just you know hey bill bye bill you know what i'm saying so yeah i, I feel like that's missing because i've worked I've worked a lot of jobs um, and I think the benefit for me, and this is going to sound really ugly, but like I'm a palpable black man, which means like people don't know that I'm black. 
And so they don't know what to make of me. And because I carry myself well, kind of have a white voice sometimes when I'm speaking, like people, you know what I'm saying? Like they treat you different. People think I'm, I'm from Brazil. Like some people think I'm Mexican, you know, like <laughs> people don't know what to make of me. And so the hard part is like, if I, if I had a darker skin, like I don't think I would get a lot of the opportunities that I have gotten. And that's yeah. messed up to say, but let's be honest, right? Because people, uh, even when I was a kid, people would say, oh, you speak so well. For who? <laughs> like for who? For in your mind, you have this idea of of black and it's it's messed up, but it's what it is, right? I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, no, thank you for sharing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely, absolutely. So you talked about how your workplace is engaging you in these conversations yeah. and Sarik hit a little bit upon uh, just kind of looking at and observing what other companies and organizations are trying to do to bring people of color into the fold to help make some of these changes and, and to really do something about it. Just based on your own experience, what you're seeing, what would you share or want to share with other organizations? Something that no one's even thinking about or talking about at all. One thing is like, don't expect like people of color to be the heroes and be the salve on your guilt, right? Like that's, that's not our place. If you, if you ask somebody of color, like, hey, can we have this conversation? And they tell you no, don't take it personally. Do some of your own research. Do some other stuff. Like, there's a lot of resources out there um, that you can learn about. Like, I, I'm 35 years old, and I just learned about in Tulsa, the Tulsa massacre. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that I think has been helpful is, again, for employers to approach with humility and asking their, their people of color, just even asking, like, hey, do you feel welcome here? Like, do you feel like this is a place where you can grow? Is there anything that I have done as an employer that has made you feel uncomfortable? Because you might not even know until you ask. And so even giving that space in order to do that is huge. Like with, with my boss, when the George Floyd stuff happened, I reached out to him and said, hey, I really need you to say something. I really need you to do a post. And, and he, not that he doesn't do that, but it was a fact of like, they've been, he's been working in inner city for umpteenth years and has been through this cycle and gets tired of saying the same thing. But what I needed from him in that point is for him to speak up and, um, and, he, we were texting back and forth and he said, hey, I need you to know that I am angry about this. And when he said that, I broke down and I, and I started crying because because for him to be a white man and for him to say, hey, I'm with you on this and I feel this deeply with you, like healed a part of me because I felt so adversarial to people just hearing comments. And so, so I think that empathy part is huge too. So humility from employers and then empathy, even if you don't know what it's like to walk through that, like showing um, that you have the capacity to care and walk alongside people. We talk about the importance of allies all the time. Like you might not be black and that's okay, but you can still be an ally. You can use your, your power, your, your privilege, your resources, whatever it is. Like you can use that to amplify the voices that need to be heard. And that's a huge asset. Like Martin Luther King, all these guys, they needed allies on the other side to get done work that they needed to get done. It's so important that you mention and you remind us about that piece of empathy because I think from what I've personally seen so many people are getting caught up in not being wrong so many people are getting caught up in not being called out and trying to be right and it truly is coming from a great place of like I want to show like I'm I know what I know but people are forgetting to showcase that empathy and it's not about I know what's right versus what's wrong or I know the right thing to say as much as it's about mm -hmm. I see what you're going through and that's not right you know that and it hurts me too that someone is going through this that that's that's the thing like 
when when the mod Aubrey happened, right? Like everybody's like, oh, he probably was doing something, and and they forgot to see that that is a that's a black boy lying dead in the streets. Like that's 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 a human life that was snatched away, right? Like like we I, I don't know where we got to in a culture that we stopped seeing people as like as people as as the Imago Dei of worthy of the divine, right? As images of the divine. Once you stop seeing that, you can you can label anybody as a statistic. You can be more, you you forge yourself the the right to be more concerned with what they did or who they were rather than the fact that that's another person who's not going home to their family. And ultimately, I mean, that's a slippery slip to dehumanization. And how many horses yes. have we heard out of that? I mean, <laughs> Hitler alone, his whole thing was dehumanizing individuals individuals and you know treating them as if they weren't people so it's okay to do or say whatever you want to do or say about them come on come on it is i I don't know if you have you seen i'm not your negro have you seen that no i haven't it's it's amazing um james baldwin says america's hatred of the black man is really a reflection of their hatred of themselves and this idea that like and hear me out like if if you have to, if you have to look at a person of color and say that they're human then you have to recognize all of the injustice that's been done to them over the years. And that's hard. That mm-hmm. is so hard. And there, and I hear so many of my, my Caucasian friends who are just like, well, I'm not racist. I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not shooting anybody. But the point is that, that we, even as Americans, we have a stain of injustice and heartache that we have to come to a reckoning as, as a nation. And if we don't do that, this is just a cycle that's going to keep going. And it's, and it's hard and it's going to be painful because there's a lot of stuff that we have to figure out. And the only way we do that is by, is by looking at it full on. And that, and that sucks. And that's hard. And I, I don't envy my white friends either who are having to deal with this. Right. But, but we have yeah, Brandon, you mentioned, you know, a lot about relationships. And I think there was something you were saying in, you know, your, your pre-response about accountability of, of texting your boss saying, I need you to, to, to do this. Whereas there are a lot of um, Black employees specifically that are in organizations that they feel that they're really disconnected from their leadership. What type of advice or, or suggestions do you have for those other Black voices that feel like they don't have that space or they don't have that ability to hold their leadership and their people of power accountable to the changes that or the, the addressing of the changes that they need to make yeah so let me just be straight up because i don't i don't work for any of these other corporations but let me just say this if you're a leader who um you're afraid of criticism then you don't need to be a leader if your employees can't in a way that is respectful bring you issues that they see within your organization then you don't have the stomach to do what needs to be done let me just say that and because i've worked for really bad bosses and, and I've, I've worked for bosses that have shamed me, dehumanized me. I've, I've been through that. Even a couple of days ago, my boss and I, we, were, we had a difference of opinion. And he said, thank you for being able to sit in this tension with me. Even if we come to blows over this, like it's okay because I know that you're for me and, I, and you know that I'm for you. And to have a boss say that to me when I'm disagreeing with him very passionately, um, not that I was disrespectful, but I did not agree with where he was coming from. And I was angry and I was upset, but we have enough of a relationship to where I can do that in a way that's respectful. And that's huge. He he knows because he's built that relationship, I would do anything for him and I would follow him anywhere. And I trust him because he's he's honored me as a person and he's built that up in me. 
even for employers. Like if you really want to get the best out of your employees, you have to have that. You have to have that trust. It doesn't mean that you have to have be all buddy buddy and go barbecue, but you have to be able, you have to allow yourself to have those hard conversations. And I know, you know, towards the beginning, you know, Ashley asked the question about race tensions boiling over again has been, you know, you said it's probably going to be a cycle if we don't address it. And it has been a cycle uh, in our past. Um, and you've seen a lot of activity around all of the things that occurred in such a short period of time, all of the things around Juneteenth and all of these, you know, things in, in a very short period of time. How do you see this change being sustainable over a longer term period and not just being, you know, rolled up in one moment um, and just kind of die away as more things aren't publicized or aren't on the media or, yeah. you know, the voices start to, to, to mellow out a little bit. So like, uh, so what, so what, what I've recognized is um, like, there's places where I'm able to speak and places where I'm not. And so my job is to affect what I can affect where I can affect it. Right. And so like, I don't have the ear of the president of the United States. I don't, but I do have the ear of the, the district attorney for Galveston, you know, and I do have ear of pastors or other leaders that I can speak to and ask for. Um, and so the only way that this is sustained is if we, if we operate where we're at and we use um, the platforms we have to speak up about that. And again, building relationships, like straight up, like I can't, I can't stress that enough. Um, if you don't, if you don't have any black friends, like that's, that's probably an issue. And I'm not saying like, go be creepy and like stalk a guy at a gym because he's black and say, <laughs> hey, be my friend. I'm not saying that, but um, if you're, dude, if you're not, if you're not around people who have other viewpoints, like I sat down with a police officer friend of mine who we do not agree whatsoever, but there had been an issue. We sat down together and at the end of it, like at least he knows that I'm for him and I know he's for me and we might not agree, but, but I still see his humanity, right? And so that, I feel like that is crazy important, especially if we want to sustain this because it's not going to be sustained by like pro protests will stop. Protests will stop. Companies will, will go back to Andrew Mama and everything else. Like it, it starts at the bottom with grassroots. Mm -hmm. So we are already nearing the end. I just have one more question. Oh, cool. I know it went so fast. It went so yeah. fast. Like, I feel like we're just getting started. Yeah. Um, but just if there's anything we haven't asked, anything we haven't hit on, anything you want to share, is there anything else that is on your mind that you just like, I want to talk about this. I want to share this. I want to say this. I want to point this out. Man, so I think what I need, need people to understand is for Black America, there has been an identity crisis, right? So even for me growing up, I didn't know that it was okay for me to be Black, right? And so I always tried to be more white so that way people would accept me. So when you label us as thugs, when you, when you have all these stereotypes on us, you are telling something even to the youth of America that, it, that they are not okay in their own skin. I mean, that will have insane ramifications for the future. This is just my own personal beliefs, but there's a scripture that talks about you work for the welfare of the city, for in its welfare, you find your own. And when we are working for the welfare of all people, the city will thrive. The, all of the city will thrive. When we're working for our immigrant brothers and when women have equitable pay, like all of that stuff, then everybody thrives. So I, I need, I need my friends to understand that. Like you, you need to understand what part in this you play and really analyze yourself to see if, if there's anything you've done that's been hurtful or that's 
um, or even the sin of omission. Maybe you just don't act. Like you hear your friends making racist jokes and you don't step in or it has to be all of us or else this is not going to work. The second thing you said was um, about people standing up and, and saying something if you hear other people being racist or you hear friends, family members, whoever it may be. Something I know I've been hearing a lot is just individuals having a really hard time doing just that. Like I am a white individual. I am friends or allies with people who are not white. And yet when I go home, I hear my family say this. I hear my brother say this. I hear so-and-so do this. There's this interesting mix of just knowing what's right, but also feeling like love to your family ties you to kind of accept the things that aren't so right. And do you, do you have anything to say to that? Anything to share? Even if it's just like, yeah, no, that happens. Like (laughs) anything to say to that. So yeah. So let's be straight up love is an action and so if love is an action that means that somebody i love is doing something that's not in line with their character or that's harmful that's detrimental i have a duty to call them out in a way that's loving and kind right and so it doesn't mean that i like throw over the dinner table and and start throwing you know like that's that's not healthy it starts in the home when you look at people who are racist like they didn't they didn't just wake up 30 years later and say oh i'm a racist today let's go hang yeah, right. And you, if you watch, if you look at pictures of lynchings, there were kids at lynching. Families would go with their picnic blankets and sit in the field and watch Black people get hanged, right? And, and it's like, well, we're not doing that, but that language is still detrimental. And so if you, if you really want to be an ally, then part of being an ally means you have to sacrifice something. The only way that you get to be an ally is if you sacrifice something. And sometimes that means sacrificing being comfortable. That means having some hard conversations with people. If you want to be an ally, if you actually want to see change, you, you have to do that. Like, w- like we have to sacrifice. And so if you want to be an ally to us, you need to sacrifice with us. If you, if you haven't seen the Freedom Riders documentary, it's one of the, the best points about that is that there were... There were, there were white allies who were riding that bus and one in the main guy who, uh, I forget what his name is, he couldn't, he couldn't make the trip. And so his white friend went with these freedom riders who were riding all over the South and got beat up, got beat up hardcore. Um, black eye, all that, almost killed and, and, and still said, I believe we have to do this. I believe we have to keep going. That's an ally. And not saying that you have to get beat up, but you have to sacrifice something. I'm going to insert a question and I'm asking this, you know, this is more so of a, of a personal question, feel free to answer as the, the topics of race have, you know, come up and knowing that, that you are, like you said, in a, in an interracial relationship, what have those conversations looked like at home for you? Like, what are some of those difficult spaces that y'all have had to navigate? My wife didn't really think racism was a thing, you know, cause she grew up in, in Friendswood and grew up in this little bubble. And, and my, my wife is like, she's an advocate. Like she is a, firehouse right we were actually on our honeymoon and got pulled over by a cop and i was treated like i was treated like dirt from this cop and i was so angry and she didn't understand why as we as we've been married she sees oh my husband gets pulled over way more than i do right and she's the one who like speeds and drives crazy but if she gets pulled over like she'll get out of a ticket and she starts seeing these things um and because of our relationship like i was able to speak to some of that stuff to say hey this is really what we've gone through with her parents we've had to have this conversation some and sometimes i haven't done that well like i've let my anger get out and had to come back and apologize and reconcile but for her as a white woman 
to walk through this stuff with me. And now she's an advocate. And so she can speak to her family in a way that I can't. And she sticks up for me and not the, and her family's super awesome and loving. And that hasn't been as hard, but I have other friends who are interracial couples whose families aren't loving, who mm. don't like that fact that they're an interracial couple. And so it's been beautiful that I'm, I'm blessed to have a wife that, and she listens and she's humble. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing. Yeah. So you mentioned the black identity crisis and yeah. Ooh, can I tell you how true, how sad, how how oh too real that is? The number of times I've personally talked to friends and we've just kind of compared stories growing up, you know, we'll pull up notes and compare notes and just say, Oh wait, you experienced this too. And one of the biggest things is just growing up being black and not not loving yourself, whether it's your skin, your family, who you represent to the world, who you represent to yourself. It's so ridiculously true. It's something that we keep seeing. It's a cyclical process of just children keep growing up and across the board, different circumstances, different levels of income, different zip codes. And you still hear a very similar story of just not appreciating and loving yourself as a black individual. Mm -hmm. Do you have any theories around how we can start changing that at, when it starts at such a young age, you know, like I, I don't even remember the earliest thought I had around not loving myself or not appreciating myself because I was black, but I know it started when I was very, very, very young. And it's like, who even creates that thought process for a young individual and how do we go about ending that process? So education is a big part of that. And just, and this is probably gonna be super like controversial, but get rid of Black History Month instead of being Black History Month, educate our students on what actually is Black history all throughout the year and all throughout. Our, our kids aren't seeing heroes that look like them when they open up their textbooks or when they, when they watch movies, when they do any of that. Like, that's why Black Panther was such a huge thing. That's why Michael Jordan was such a huge icon because we, we are always, always, always looking for heroes that look like us. Like if you look at all the statues, my white friends, they, they can point to their heroes or Captain America looks like them, right? So we, we need that. And I think it starts with education. Like we need to stop whitewashing education. We need to stop whitewashing religion. Jesus was not white. <laughs> he was brown, right? And so like all of that plays into identity so mm. huge, and especially for our kids. We And their identity needs to be reaffirmed. Like if my kid wants to wear a hoodie, let them wear a hoodie. If they want to wear their Reeboks or Nikes or whatever, that should be celebrated, not demonized. And that's why Hamilton was so big. Like my wife and I watched Hamilton and like a baby. Even the the guy who plays Bird, like he he talks about like he was watching the play the the last leg, and the reason why he wanted to get on so bad is because he had never in his life seen all these black men representing these monumental figures of history. How crazy is that, dude? If you don't know your identity, then you're you're lost and you're wayward. And so people can complain about, oh, you know, black men are gangsters and this and that. Some of us have, have fallen into that. But the reason why is because our identity was taken away. Like when yeah. you don't have identity, when you don't know who you are, like there's a verse again that says the people without vision will perish. If you don't have a vision for your life, if you don't have, if you don't know who you are and who you're called to be, you're lost. That, I feel like that has been probably one of the most detrimental things to black culture. Like we, we don't know who we are. And, and I love that there are artists who are coming out in like blackish and we just watched Fast Colors, which is a whole movie about a black superheroine. It's so good. 
Yeah, because it's a superhero movie, a, you know, black female superhero, and it's her grandmother and her, like, it's all about their legacy as a family. It's so beautiful. Yeah, my wife and I were just weeping, just, uh, it's so good. Ren, I know we've asked you a lot of questions, asked you to share your reflections, your thoughts, your feelings. Kind of towards the end here, do you have any questions for Ashley and myself? Yeah, like, how, how are you guys dealing with all of this? Tariq, I know you posted about, like, dude, stop asking me where I'm from. <laughs> I've been asked that question. It's such a stupid question. <laughs> stop saying that. I, I think it's, you know, as Ashley mentioned in the beginning, it's, we've we've spent, her and I spent a lot of time venting to each other, looking for, you know, I guess like validation between ourselves about how we carry ourselves and how we be in our workplace, stuff like that. Because you feel like you're crazy. You feel like you're crazy, dude. You feel I, like you're crazy. You really that do? was the literal question. I said, Ashley, this can't only be us, right? Because you're losing your mind. And so that's all of those things, a combination of, of our friendship over the, you know, the time we've been friends has led us to, to the, the change. Our, and it came to the point where we felt that in order for us to find the answers that we were looking for, it would be creating space for helping others find those answers or helping us through others find those answers. And, and that's really been, you know, we've had a couple of these now and it's always been the space of like, we're learning stuff, we're getting to share stuff and we're, mm -hmm. we're having these, these conversations and it's just been, you know, really great to have. But you mentioned a, a few things about coming to that realization yourself and removing yourself from your identity. And I think for a long time, I wanted to be from Dallas because it made me normal. As to where I am now is I need to be from Dallas because I need you to know that brown people can be from Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I need you to know these things. And that's, you know, how my narrative has changed. You know, these conversations have come up. It took me, you know, that amount of time to do my own education and learn and figure out how, you know, I was going to respond and how I was going to take those steps and, and grow and change as a person. It took me a long time just to put black on my the card. You know how when you fill out like demographic information, I would fill out a bunch of them because I'm a mix. So I would just, and right. now it's like, it's okay. Like, it's okay to be a black man. Um, for me, in terms of how I'm doing, it, it depends on the day. Just just for context, I'm half Black, half Mexican. So I am always caught in a very interesting place in people's eyes. And it puts me in my own eyes and my, for my own perception in an interesting place at times. So when we're talking about Vanessa Guillen, you know, you have a bunch of people yeah. who are rising up. It's like, no, we should have been rising because this is affecting all of us, baby. It is affecting all of us. You're just we're different shades of brown, but we all brown at the end of the day. Like it, yeah. it's hurting all of us. This is traumatic. Like, <laughs> it's traumatic. It's traumatic. Yeah. And then you have to wake up, put a smile on your face, do your work, do your day-to-day -day things. And like, we have to keep our cool. We always have to be the adults in the room while everybody else gets to be children. That's across the board by minorities. Like for dreamers, like they, they can't even get a traffic ticket. Come on, man. Like we always have to be at the top of our game and be better than everybody else and be and be the most respectful and the most and not even be seen as equal at the end of the day. That's the thing. Like you have to try three, four, five times as hard to just be acceptable, to just be deemed as, oh yeah, you can come into this space. You can embody this room. You can have and host this conversation. It's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, people need to know that like, like, it, it takes a lot for us not to just go off the handle. And what's bad is like, all this trauma creates depression and all these other things. And we we don't even get to talk about that. Like, we don't even get the time to be depressed and deal with our mental 
health issues because of all the stuff that we deal with on the other end. Like, and then when you couple COVID-19 on top of that, on top of being in a space where you're forced to isolate yourself from so many people that you love, adore, respect, and that help you get through these tough issues, it's a lot that's just piling up right now. Yeah. And don't you talk about like Black people in, in healthcare. Black women die in childbirth more than anybody else because they're not believed for their symptoms. Like COVID has hit black communities harder than anybody else because people don't believe their symptoms. Like I have family right now that can't even get a test. They're, they have a kid in the house that's sick and they can't get a test. So yeah, be kind to us because we're, we're going through it. So I just want to shout out uh, Park Madison, NYC. Like uh, if y'all haven't seen the show When They See Us, right? This is like, I love this shirt, love this company. Yeah, so it's just the names of the Central Park Five. So Yusef, Kevin, Antron, Corey, and Raymond. If you haven't seen that movie, like just understanding kind of what we go through as as black men, as people of color, that's really good. Watching the Thirteenth is really good. Um, will open your eyes on a bunch of stuff. But um, but this is a situation that's just dear to my heart because those were black kids who had their lives taken away, and then again for the president of the United States for him to take out a full page article about why they deserve the death penalty. And then even after they were exonerated to not even walk that back, that hurts. Kids, I think either Yusef or one, one of them was like 12 or 13, mm -hmm. you know? And then Corey almost didn't get out. Well, my, my wife watched like one episode and then she couldn't watch anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thankful for you guys for doing stuff like this. That was good. No, we really appreciate you, Brandon, taking the time, you know, to share, to, um, to be vulnerable with us, to uh, share this space with us. Again, yeah. thank, you, uh, thank you for joining us this after, this evening. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be cool to hear you guys talk about, like, um, interracial marriages and inter interracial, like, people, like, mixed people and, like, just that struggle because that's, that's a thing. Thank you guys <laughs> for what you do. Thanks, guys. That's all we have for this episode on managing the workplace during a racial pandemic. Thanks for tuning in. To read more on our thoughts about this topic, visit our website where you can find all of our blog posts and more. Thanks for listening to The Change Chart, where we are more than just a penny for your thoughts.